Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Jim Acosta, a CNN anchor and chief domestic correspondent. Jim recently took over a sprawling five-hour chunk of CNN's weekend programming, anchoring on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. He came to the anchor chair after spending eight years as a White House reporter for CNN, most recently serving as the network's chief correspondent, known for his high-profile clashes with former President Donald Trump. I called up Jim on Monday to discuss his move from the White House press room to CNN's Washington, D.C. studios, what he plans to do with his new show, and why he thinks the media still needs to cover Trump and Trumpism. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So I should say congratulations on the uh, recent launch of your show, which airs on Saturdays and Sundays on CNN uh, and has made quite a splash in uh, its first few months. And before this gig, you were obviously CNN's chief White House correspondent and one of the most high profile figures covering the Trump administration. Are you happy to be off the White House beat and into the anchor chair? Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I have been describing uh, my final day at the White House as the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, when I, you know, when I left the White House grounds that day, actually, I, I got into a, a van and we went over to, you know, Joint Base Andrews and I got on Air Force One with Trump for his last flight out of D.C. You know, when it, it seemed like the dictator was going into exile. Uh, but I, I, you know, for me, that moment was like the Shawshank Redemption. I was like looking up to the heavens as the rain was coming down. Um, I had spent, you know, seven and a half years on that beat and it is all consuming. You know, you can't put your phone down. Your phone is in your hand and from the moment you open your eyes until the moment you go to bed at night. And even, you know, sometimes, you know, overnight in the middle of the night, you're waking up and looking at your phone. Uh, for example, when Trump uh, had the coronavirus, I would wake myself up in the middle of the night, three or four a.m., just to see if he had passed away, because we were concerned that he might die from the coronavirus. And so, you know, just seven and a half years of that kind of toll, you know, at some point you just you realize it's time. You you know, you check the box, you you ring the bell at the top of the pole. Um, it's time to move on to other things. And when CNN offered the idea of me having my own show, um, I was pretty excited about it. This is the first time I've ever been hired as an anchor uh, in all of my travels as a reporter. And I uh, decided to, you know, grab the opportunity with, with both fists, um, just thinking, you know, how could I pass this up? So it was, it was time. Um, it, it was just time for a new adventure, uh, change of scenery. You know, I was in that booth. I don't know if you've been to the White House a press area before, but the booth, as we call it, uh, the, the workspace that uh, reporters work in uh, for CNN and other news outlets, uh, it's pretty, you know, pretty cramped quarters. You're, you're sharing a glorified phone booth with four or five other people. Um, the sights, the smells, the sounds, all of those <laughs> things. And, you know, during the pandemic, it was even more uh, uncomfortable because, you know, you know, we were worried about catching the coronavirus. And so, um, you know, just all of those, you know, working conditions, just lifestyle uh, issues, uh, you know, the toll that it takes on yourself personally, family and all that. It was just time. It was it was really time. And, uh, you know, I feel like it's been a good change so far. You're also chief domestic correspondent for CNN. Uh, does that mean you're going to be getting out of the anchor chair much? It does. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, what we're hoping is that you know, when we have uh, some some big news events uh, happening around the country that I'll, I'll go in there and I'll, I'll cover those things. 
Um, you know, if it's a natural disaster, uh, you know, or, or you know, if if the um, political uh, stuff heats up uh, over the next couple of years, there may be big events where it might be a good idea for me to go out there. I mean, I don't know if I'll be out there covering Trump rallies. Who knows? Maybe I will. You know, um, but um, I certainly see myself as somebody who's not just anchoring the news. I, you know, I want to be reporting the news. Uh, and that means both, uh, you know, at the bureau, on the set and out in the field. Now, throughout the COVID pandemic, obviously, anchors and hosts have been doing their jobs from home studios, uh, for the most part. Have you ever done uh, sort of anchored a show from a home studio? Or have you been in the CNN Washington DC studios this whole time? Uh, no, I, I've been at the studio uh, the entire time. Um, you know, there were uh, instances where I would fill in for Wolf Blitzer and I would go in uh, and there would be, you know, maybe two other people and myself, you know, it was, mm -hmm. it was that um, uh, isolating. Um, you know, we were, we were really working with a, a skeletal crew uh, during the pandemic. Um, so no, I've not had like a set set up in my home or anything like that. Unfortunately, my show started as we were kind of coming out of the pandemic and things were starting to loosen up in the bureau. So, um, nice. so fortunately for me, that's been, I, that's been a blessing. And so for the show, it, it airs on, uh, on Saturdays and Sundays, and you have five hours to work with, uh, which is a lot of time in two days. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? Yeah. Are you approaching it differently than you would say, a, you know, an hour long daily show? Is there, are you looking to do more with that, with that longer time? Yeah, I mean, I've been um, talking to my producers about this, and I've been pushing for, hey, let's do longer interviews. Uh, let's do longer segments. Uh, if the pieces are a little longer, that's okay. Um, you know, let's do international news. Uh, let's let's cover you know everything under the sun if we can. And we've had you know luxury of time to do that, which has been nice. Uh, it, I've kind of looked at it as sort of a, uh, a workshop, uh, you know, your weekend workshop where you're experimenting with different things. Um, and I think it's been I think it's been working pretty well so far. Uh, you know, obviously, if I had a one hour show every day, it would just be totally different. Um, you know, the right I've I've filled on filled in on shows that are like that. The writing's a lot tighter. The pieces are tighter. The segments are tighter. You may only have a time to ask a lawmaker or a newsmaker three different questions. And then, you know, because typically those newsmakers filibuster a little bit and the, the interview's over and you've got to move on to the next thing. But, you know, sometimes uh, on the weekends, you've got time to play with. Uh, you know, I had uh, Rick Grinnell on a couple weekends ago, and, you know, I thought it was going to be more of a substantive discussion on the Wuhan, Wuhan lab uh, leak possibility. And he was starting to throw jabs at the media. And I was like, come on, Rick, you know, and I had, I had time to challenge him. I didn't have the producers in my ear saying, oh, my God, we got to go. Uh, we're destroying the lineup, you know, kind of thing. And um, that it's good to have that luxury. So that part of it I've enjoyed. Yeah, it's almost like the, the magazine style of, uh, of, of cable news shows. Um, now, I, I wanted to ask you about a comment that you made in a recent interview about your new show. Uh, you were speaking about covering the Trump movement after his presidency. And you said, the more sunlight we put on these crazy conspiracy theories and bad faith efforts to spread disinformation, the better off the public is going to be. So you're of the opinion then that we need to be covering the Trump movement uh, as opposed to the alternate belief that he that it should be deplatformed or ignored. Yeah, I mean, 
I think we do, uh, I think we stick our heads in the sand. We ignore Trump and Trumpism at, at our peril. Um, if you look at what happened during the Trump presidency, I saw this firsthand. He referred to us as the enemy of the people over and over again. It got to a point where one of his deranged supporters sent pipe bombs in the mail to CNN. He kept referring to migrant Asia. What did we see happen at the Tree of Life uh, massacre or a Walmart uh, massacre? You saw these gunmen writing manifestos talking about an invasion of immigrants. There has been a cause and effect, I think, established pretty clearly between Trump's incendiary rhetoric and these acts of violence. Um, I, I, you know, you saw what happened on January 6th with the big lie. He incited these people over and over again, lying about the election results to the point where some of his supporters got out of control and staged a riotous insurrection at the Capitol where people died. And so, you know, and, and look what he's, he's doing it again. Look what happened over the weekend in North Carolina, repeating these lies over and over again, talking about the Biden administration as if it's illegitimate. I mean, it's uncomfortable to talk about. I don't take any joy in talking about it. I sure as hell wish I could have moved on like the rest of America after he lost and left the White House and went into exile. But it, it is still here. He is still here. Trumpism is still here. And we have to cover it. And I think ignoring it or turning the other cheek uh, is just dangerous because, you know, if I stop talking about it and you stop talking about it, Aiden, it doesn't mean that he's not going to stop. He's not going to stop talking about it. Um, he is still out there, um, you know, talking about this stuff in, in ways that I just think are very dangerous. I think there's this misconception oh, okay. that if CNN or the New York Times just starts ignoring Trump, that he, somehow he's going to stop, he's going to lose his support. Um, I mean, exactly. I the, the, obvious, yeah, no. the obvious answer is that those people are just, I mean, they're just going to get their news elsewhere about Trump. Um, you know, there's, there's independent right. outlets. Yeah, he goes on Fox, he goes on OAN, he goes on Newsmax, he goes on talk radio um, uh, with these, you know, propagandists and apologists. And he says this stuff and is not fact checked. And so, you know, are we supposed to yield the entire media spectrum to these lunatics? No, I don't think so. I think you have to have that pushback. And uh, it's our duty to do it. I think we would be uh, derelict in our duty as journalists uh, to just completely stick our heads in the sand. I think, you know, there were people who advocated that throughout the Trump, Trump presidency. I didn't, I never bought into that. I always thought that that was um, wishful thinking that, you know, if we just ignored the tweets or ignored what he said, it would all just go away. And, you know, as you were just saying, Aiden, yes, some, some of us certainly in, in the media landscape could do that, but that doesn't necessarily um, get in the way of his message. Uh, he has figured out ways to go around uh, the mainstream news media. And, and so we have to cover it. There's just, there's, you know, we would be, um, you know, I think we'd be whistling past the graveyard if, if we decided to do that. Now, I'm curious how that uh, belief interacts with a big topic in cable news last week, which was whether or not to book election deniers on air. Uh, Chris Wallace at Fox News dismissed this idea that you would ban Republicans who challenged uh, the election from your show. Uh, I think he, he, he sort of mocked it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And Jake Tapper said he had no interest in, in speaking to uh, people like Josh Hawley, Elise Stefanik, who had, had denied um, the election results. What's your take on that debate? Do you think there's any use in interviewing those kind of politicians? Well, I, I do think there is some use in interviewing them because uh, I, I think they have to be challenged on their viewpoints. And 
you know, we can't just uh, get into a situation where, you know, uh, you know, a certain the red team is on Fox and the blue team is on CNN and MSNBC or the other mainstream news outlets. Um, you know, one of the things I, I did read some of that discussion, and I found it to be very interesting. But one of the things that I think we lost uh, sight of in that discussion is how a lot of uh, these uh, Trumpists are afraid to come on CNN. They won't come on CNN. We, I try uh, over and over and over again. If somebody wants to find my emails and put them on the internet, they can. Uh, because I've tried, tried over and over again to get people like Ted Cruz, people like Josh Hawley, people like you know all of these guys to come on with me because I think they need to be interviewed. I, need to, I think they need to be questioned. Now, if they start going down the road of just lying through their teeth, over and over again, you know, maybe you stop the interview. Maybe you, maybe you don't interview them after that. But I think we have to make the attempt um, to challenge these viewpoints. If somebody's going to go out there and claim uh, that you know Joe Biden didn't didn't win the election and they're an elected member of Congress, I mean, I just think that that is so uh, insane that it has to be challenged. And you know, in addition to uh, having them on news programs and, and that sort of thing, there are some great reporters up on Capitol Hill who are chasing those lawmakers around to essentially ask them a lot of these same questions. And, and I think those questions are all well and good. I think they have to be asked. You know, if you pump your fist at a crowd of insurrectionists on January 6th, and then you have this violent rebellion unfold, uh, you know, in the chapel of our democracy, you know, I'm sorry, you, you, you ought to expect some intense scrutiny. I don't think there's just any other way around it. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. And I think that you make a good point that if, you know, if, if, if a network like CNN or, or uh, you know, an outlet like the New York Times is not interviewing people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, then really you're at a point where media is just completely siloed. Those politicians are going on Fox News. They're speaking yeah. to a certain audience. Um, and there doesn't, you know, at no point are they going to be fact-checked on what they're saying uh, unless it's, you know, it, it's outside of an interview context. Um, yeah, I, I understand there are some people who are so silly and goofy that they just shouldn't be put on national television. You know what I mean? Like there's sure. just some folks who are, you know, they're clowns and maybe they got elected to Congress uh, or maybe they got elected to whatever you know state house they represent uh, or, or work at. Um, but I don't think that uh, you know I, we shouldn't just put any any person on who wants to you know shout this kind of nonsense. Does that mean there's a particular member of Congress that is not uh, permitted, <laughs> not invited on CNN Newsroom with Jim Acosta? Um, I don't want to mention any by name, uh, mm. but um, I mean I because I don't I, I don't know if you should ever say never. Um, but I do think that there are certainly some members of Congress, uh, who, if they came on would probably, uh, see it as an opportunity to pull a prank on us and, and, you know, troll us and gaslight us and so on. And maybe it's just not worth the time. Um, but you know, I, I do think that if Marjorie Taylor Greene wanted to come on my show and I've asked her to come on a couple of times, you know, you know, she goes up to uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's uh, office and lifts up the little mail slot and, and trolls her, yet she won't come on, you know, CNN. You know, what's the big deal? You know, sit down for five or to 10 minutes and defend yourself. A lot of these, and that's the thing that is lost in this discussion, is that sadly, a lot of these folks, they're, they're, they're uh, willing to throw their weight around on social media and act like trolls. But in many cases, they're cowards and they're cowards because they probably realize deep down that they can't defend their position when somebody is grilling them with tough questions. Mm. 
Now, I, I want to ask about uh, your time reporting on Trump, which inspired your book, The Enemy of the People. Your confrontational and often plain-spoken style earned you a lot of admirers, but also a lot of critics. What did you make of the criticism that you faced and how you handled Trump and his administration? Well, you know, um, there are a lot of critics out there. You know, one of the things I've told people is that, you know, if you want to be loved, go be a veterinarian. Uh, don't become a journalist. Uh, certainly don't do uh, White House reporting while Donald Trump was president of the United mm. States. Um, but, you know, if, if people are out there thinking that uh, because of that criticism that, you know, I curled myself into the fetal position at night and cried myself to sleep, uh, you know, they're, they're sorely mistaken. Um, I saw what I had to do uh, as, as, as necessary. Uh, during the Trump administration. When you go out there and you refer to stories that are totally legitimate and newsworthy as fake news, when you refer to the press as the enemy of the people, when you refer to migrants as being part of an invasion, when you try to overturn the election results of a free and fair election that were totally legitimate, you should expect the most intense news coverage that has ever existed in the history of mankind. The way Donald Trump carried himself, behaved as president of the United States was a total debacle. It was just, just an outlandish betrayal of what an American president should be about. And from start to finish, um, the lying on social media, uh, the demonization of people on social media, the demonization of political opponents, you know, lock her up at rallies and you know build the wall and send her back and all that. I mean, how in the world are you not supposed to cover that with some intensity? And so day in and day out, yes. I mean, it was, you know, it was, uh, we were busy, you know, it was intense. But I, I can't imagine it being any other way. I, and I don't uh, second guess uh, the motivations or how other people uh, conducted themselves uh, over the last four years. Um, but uh, my attitude is, is that we should not just absorb that abuse. Uh, when that abuse is directed at the free press in the United States, uh, journalists should stand their ground and continue to ask the hard questions. I just, I just don't see it, it going any other way. Imagine, Aiden, if uh, you and I and the rest of us had just uh, absorbed that stuff and never pushed back. Uh, if we had never, you know, we'd never gotten into the business of becoming fact checkers in real time and just allowed all this lies and nonsense become sort of an alternate reality, an alternate world of, of truth and facts, where would we be as a country right now? We would be going down the tubes. And I just, to me, there's just no other way to do it. And so, yes, it was uncomfortable and it was pretty, it was probably dangerous at times. And, you know, I had family and friends who were worried about me at times, no question about it. But I just don't, I, 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 to me, I worried about the message that would have sent to not just like my my family and, and people around the country, but around the world, if we just, you know, took it, if we just absorbed that abuse and didn't do anything about it, I just, to me, that just would have sent a terrible message about what we do in this country as journalists. You know, that, that reminds me of, there was always this funny uh, series that uh, some conservative platform did during the Trump years. And it would always say, you know, media is 90%, media coverage is 90% negative against Trump. And I was like, it, you know, that could be justified. You know, it's not the media's job to look at different presidents and say, okay, we need to make sure that our coverage of them is 50-50 negative and positive each presidency. Um, he was probably lying 90% of the time. That's the thing. <laughs> you know, um, do you- They saw, they saw fact-checking as negative coverage. Yeah, exactly. Um, do, do you, 
do you have any criticism for the way the media handled the, the coverage of, of the Trump administration? Um, do you think that, you know, there's any criticism of the media at the time that was justified? Or do you think mostly media handled coverage of the Trump administration in an appropriate way? I hate to be non-controversial, but I just don't see myself as the ombudsman of my profession. Fair. Um, there are just so many folks who do things differently, and um, I, I completely understand that. Um, one of the things that I observed as a White House correspondent is that you have a lot of different journalists in, in various different roles. Uh, you know, print reporters, uh, wire service reporters. Uh, they are doing a different kind of job. Uh, they're, they're out there trying to get nuggets about who the next deputy secretary of commerce might be and stuff like that. And, you know, they can't exactly be on the North Lawn of the White House calling Donald Trump a liar <laughs> and expecting to get that kind of information from the administration. And so they're, you know, but, but you know, here's the thing that a lot of folks don't realize and you know i could have written a thousand page book uh instead of the, the 386 of some odd page book that i wrote there were so many reports and i did touch on this from time to time in my book there were some reporters like josh dossie who got great scoops throughout the trump presidency there were moments in that white house briefing room where he was really tough on the white house press secretary there were other print reporters who did the same thing um, you know, at the Helsinki press conference, I believe it was a couple of wire service reporters who were asked uh, to, uh, you know, ask questions of Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. Uh, I believe it was Jeff Mason and Jonathan Lemire. Both did an outstanding job. Wire service reporters did an outstanding job uh, questioning the president of the United States and Vladimir Putin about what went on between those two guys. And so they were, you know, I, sometimes I feel like, um, too much attention has been, you know, paid to what I did and how I went about it and so on. Because there were there were a lot of my colleagues who were, I think, also doing great work. I think, not again, not to be non-controversial, but I think it was a shining moment uh, for the press during the Trump presidency. I know that there were things that we did wrong. I know there are people who say we covered them too much, or we talked about the tweets too much, or you know, maybe we're uh, too combative at times. Uh, and I'll uh, plead guilty to that. Maybe I was too combative at times and so on. Um, but I think by and large, the press performed admirably during the Trump presidency. And, you know, I know that there are people going to throw their beer cans at the computer screen if they watch this or read this or listen to it or whatever. But I do think that at the end of the day, uh, these are some pretty unprecedented, uh, dangerous circumstances for the press. And I think we're going to look back years from now and say, OK, those guys did all right. Is it an A plus? Maybe it's not an A plus, but I think uh, you know a, a, a gentlemanly B, uh, maybe an order, uh, maybe a B plus. I think we did okay. Now I had uh, Jonathan Carl of ABC News on the podcast uh, last year, and he had some interesting comments about you. He said that he had been quite critical uh, of your style in his own book, um, but that events uh, that happened, I believe it must have been twenty twenty, uh, that ended up vindicating you and the the sort of stance that you took uh, in, in the approach in, in, in sort of covering the administration. Uh, I have a quote here. He said, I think that Jim was right to be outraged that the president was declaring the free press an enemy of the people. I was too. He expressed it in a more pointed way. And I respect that. Did you, what did you make of those comments and of his sort of previous criticism? Did you, did you respect that? Uh, what were your thoughts on it? Um, I mean, listen, I, um, I, 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 
don't like to take shots at my colleagues in the press because, you know, we're all working under different circumstances. There are various pressures coming from our bosses. Um, you know, he may have been under a different kind of pressure over uh, at ABC versus, you know, what I was at, uh, you know, dealing with at CNN. I, I mean, it's hard to make heads or tails of the initial criticism of it because I don't know all of the circumstances behind it. Um, I, 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 I accept uh, his criticism, you know, as he stated it at the time. And I was pleased to see that he, you know, said, hey, maybe Jim did it all right, uh, given the given what we were all dealing with at the time. Um, you know, he came by the booth one day and uh, told me uh, that, um, you know, that he had kind of recalibrated his thinking on on things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I appreciated that. And there was a time when uh, Trump went after Carl uh, during a briefing and I went on the air and I said, I think John's a great reporter and does a great job. Um, you know, it was one of those, I hate to say it was such a uh, trying, um, difficult experience at times covering that White House. And we were in such a competitive environment that sure, there were times and moments when you were kind of frustrated with your colleagues and you're like, oh, what's the deal with that question? Why did they or why did that person let that guy or why, why did that person let Trump off the hook or Sarah Sanders off the hook, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it was it was such a difficult experience for all of us um, that I just, you know, I don't like to get sucked into, you know, taking shots at people. I just think that it, we, we did the, you know, the damn best that we could um, in the middle of what was a very difficult experience. I mean, I met with um, Sam Donaldson, who was somebody I really look up to, former ABC guy um, during the Trump presidency. And, you know, he said, uh, Jim, you know, there are going to be some of your colleagues who are just never going to understand what you're going through. And he said, but you know what? You're doing it right. Keep charging. Don't let him off the hook. And, you know, Dan Rather uh, was at one of my book appearances uh, when my book came out and essentially said the same thing that, you know, you have to uh, call him like you see him. And I've been thinking about a lot of this lately, Aiden, because um, here we are again covering Trump. And it's this question, once again, what do we do about it? What do we do about him? And I go back to what I uh, wrote about in my book, which is there aren't two sides to a story when it's a matter of right versus wrong. And when he's out there uh, continuing to question the results of an election, and you know it, he's doing it in a way that is inciting people, and it could be so dangerous. I think about what the Cronkites the Rathers, the Donaldsons of the world would have done in this era. Walter Cronkite went to Vietnam, came back, said the war can't be won. Uh, Dan Rather and Sam Donaldson, you know, tangled with uh, the likes of Richard Dixon and Ronald Reagan and so on. I mean, it, this is not an easy job. It's not a job that's going to win you a lot of friends. But at the end of the day, I think you just have to individually decide, you know, how, how best it is for you to, to do that to do that job. So one fairly disturbing uh, development in the Trump years was not just the president's anti-media rhetoric, but there was also a considerable amount of sort of violent rhetoric and threats directed at the media. Uh, you mentioned earlier the, um, the uh, guy sending pipe bombs to CNN, which I think is weirdly sort of overlooked now. It's not really talked about that much, but it was a fairly exactly. nuts thing that happened. And for it to have been inspired by a president is even crazier. Um, you were one of uh, the most high profile of what Trump would consider his his enemies. 
Um, did you ever get to a point where you felt like things were getting dangerous? Well, I, 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 I did write about this and I, the honest answer to the question is yes. Um, and I don't know, I don't want to make too much of it because then it becomes a thing and people are like, oh, they're poking holes in it and whatnot. But I'll just tell you, this is the thing. So right when we realized that Caesar Sayoc was sending pipe bombs to CNN, Andrew Kaczynski and other people were going into his social media stuff before it was shut down. There was a tweet from him directed at me that said, Acosta, enemy of America, you are next. And it had a picture of a decapitated goat, um, you know, uh, yeah, as part of his tweet. That immediately precipitated my receiving additional security. Um, and then the whole press pass thing happened. There was, you know, a call that came in to CNN, kill Jim Acosta. Uh, or there was a tweet or something like that that said, kill Jim Acosta. Uh, at that point, I had round the clock security at wow. my home. Um, and so um, there was another instance where, you know, somebody swatted uh, my home and sent the SWAT team to my home. Um, you know, there's, there are just things like that that occurred during the course of the last, you know, year or two of, of his presidency that made things very uncomfortable. Um, you know, I, I wrote about this in the book. I, you know, I thought, you know, do I need to carry a stun gun around with me? And that's sort of, I didn't do that, but I didn't think the, the secret service would allow me to bring that into the white house. But, you know, there, we escalated security, uh, elevated the security that I had with me going to rallies and whatnot because of this. And so if I, I go to a Trump rally, you know, I have anywhere between two to four, security guards. And wow. what I tell people is that we should not be a in a place in the United States of America where a reporter needs four bodyguards to go to a Trump rally. And before the midterm elections in 2018, I had four and there was one night where I had five bodyguards around me going to uh, the Trump rallies. And, you know, at the at the end of the um, 2020 campaign, one of the unsettling things that happened was the Trump campaign said, you can't bring any more private security into these events. And so we had to uh, rely on Trump security people to give us security protection to get in and out of those rallies during the last month or two of the campaign. And what was interesting about that, Aiden, is, you know, uh, you would think, oh, those guys would hate us. You know, some of those Trump security guards would lean over to me and go, hey, Jim, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job. Thanks for what you're doing for this country. Wow, <laughs> that's say, amazing. I would say, don't tell any. Don't, do not tell the Trump campaign, you know, the deep can I get this guy well. for the next rally? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're, as I like to say, if you're complaining about the deep state, you're probably a deep shit, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, so uh, I guess I make light of it sometimes because it, it helps uh, numb things a little bit in terms of your concerns about it. But that's one of the reasons why it was, it was okay for me to move into this anchoring role, actually more than okay, it was, a, it was a welcome change for me to move into this anchoring role because, you know, my blood pressure, my ability to sleep through the night, all of that was like shot to hell by the end of the Trump presidency. Um, so, you know, I sleep better at night. Uh, I have dinner in the evening with friends, you know, Lovely. things aren't, things aren't so bad. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, there were, there were moments, there were certainly moments where I felt like, you know, uh, somebody going to try to take me out. And the thing I always worried about was, you know, somebody comes after me and they might end up 
hurting somebody else, hurting my crew, uh, hurting my producer and so on. And so it, it was something that I thought about quite a bit. We were both at CPAC this year, the Conservative Political Action Conference, where Trump has his first speech of the post-presidency. Mm -hmm. And you had a couple encounters with hecklers, um, whether they were people attending the, the conference. Uh, there was also a writer at The Federalist who sort of berated you about CNN's coverage. Um, it, is that something that now you have to, you're, you're dealing with when you're going to Trump rallies and even after Trump's presidency? And is it annoying having to deal with that after being sort of villainized by Trump for four years that this is still something that's ongoing? Yeah, I was a little surprised that that happened at CPAC. Um, it doesn't happen to me that often. That really is the kind of the last time I, I dealt with it uh, to any kind of annoying degree. Um, and this is the thing that I tell people, I try to tell people when they focus in on the, the negative stuff is that I can't tell you, Aiden, and I'm not saying this to toot my own horn. I cannot tell you though, how many times people come up to me and my colleagues and say, thank you for what you did. Uh, thank you for the job that you're doing. Um, I, I get it all the time and I don't say that to toot my own horn or you know, puff up my ego or anything like that. Um, what it says to me is that uh, as much as we worry about uh, what folks on the far right think of us and uh, you know, we're hyper aware of what various conservative websites say or what Fox News say, says, we, I don't think we pay enough attention to the other parts of the political spectrum where there are people who are grateful for what we do and are happy that we're there doing our jobs. And in some cases don't think we're being tough enough. Um, and so um, I, you know, I say that only to make sure that that, that is said, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, that, that sort of stuff happens. I suppose it's gonna continue to happen, but uh, I don't think it's a, a lasting phenomenon. I, I, I tend to be an optimist about this country. I don't think Trumpism is a lasting phenomenon. I think that it's quite possible that, you know, this could, um, you know, peter out uh, over time. Um, you know, a lot of this hinges on, though, what happens next over the next three or four years. And, and we could talk about that. You know, Trump, Trump may be waning in his influence to some degree. Uh, but Trumpism is is not. And it, it's a disturbing trend. It's one that we're going to be dealing with for some time. Um, and I, I suspect it will make, you know, life a little bit more difficult for reporters and so on as, as we move forward. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to get in a, a media question as part of my last one. Um, I, I noticed your show uh, tackles Fox News a bit. And there's an argument to be made that Fox News is not worthy of coverage on CNN because it's, you know, just a cable news network. It's a rival one. On the other hand, it's a massively influential entity in conservative politics, especially after four years of a president who is so uh, obsessed with cable news. Do you think covering Fox on CNN is, is fair game? You know, it, you know, I don't think we can avoid the conversation. Uh, as much as it pains me to say that, um, I, I wish we didn't have to cover them. Um, but look what happened after the the election. Um, you know, there were people there at Fox who were trying to tell the truth about what happened in the November election. Uh, people like Chris Steyerwalt uh, about what happened in Arizona and so on. Maybe they called Arizona too early. I, you know, I, I, that's not my area of expertise, calling elections and so on. Um, but they did get the result correct. Uh, Trump lost Arizona. Uh, I know for a fact that because I talked to the Trump people, he and their people went ballistic 
when Fox did that. What did Fox do? They got rid of Starwalt um, and they saw their viewers hemorrhage over to Newsmax and OAN. Well, how did Fox respond to that? Fox responded by becoming more Fox, um, more Fox-like and more Trumpian. And um, there was, I think, a moment of opportunity there for Fox News to come back to the real world. And what they've decided to do since then is double down on being what I call the bullshit factory. They churn out segments that gin up outrage that they know is gonna piss off their viewers and so on, even if it's cockamamie made up nonsense. And they do it for, for the simple reason of attracting viewers and ginning up the ratings. And I, you know, I've thought long and hard about this, you know, and my attitude is that we have to talk about it, we have to cover it. Do we need to do it every hour of every day? No, we don't. But you know, if Trump or his lackeys go on Fox and they spew this nonsense about the election and they're not fact-checked in real time, then they're operating as propagandists and they're doing a bad thing for this country. And it, it pains me to say that because I've known some people that have worked at Fox over the years. There were people at Fox who were pinging me during the Trump presidency saying, way to go, Jim, keep going, um, and so on. Um, you know, I know there are folks there who want to do the right thing, but to some, to some extent, they've decided to become something like the tobacco industry, where they've decided, okay, we know we, we make a product that harms people, uh, but we're but we're just going to have to double down and do it because it's just making a shit ton of money, and I think that um, I, I I do think that uh, I, my hope is deep down that there are folks there over time who will come to their senses and realize that they're doing great damage to this country, and to have people like Tucker Carlson on, you know, he he there was this clip the other night where he was he was trying to say that you know white supremacy. Uh, he said something about white supremacy being the worst thing that's happened in America or something like that, but it, he almost said the best thing or something like that. I mean, he, ha he has these moments where he just sounds like a race baiting tyrant. And it's like, what is, what's, what's, what is he doing? What is that? It's ginning up anger and rage and uh, frustration in a certain segment of the American public, and I do think it does just a great deal of harm to this country. And I, um, I, I don't want to talk about individual people there. That's not my thing. I don't want to get into that. But it is a part of this Trumpism phenomenon that is doing damage to this country. And I just, I, there's just no other way to put it. And you can, again, we can whistle past the graveyard and stick our heads in the sand. My experience has been over these last four years, as difficult as it is, you know, as much as we don't want to have this conversation, if you ignore this problem, it is going to get worse. And talking about the problem, covering it, I think in the long run will make things better. And it's just, I think it just breaks down as that kind of a decision. All right, I think that's a good place to end it, Jim. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Aiden, great to talk to you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to the interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Jim Acosta on Mediate.com.